Amen. Hey, if you want to begin to make your way to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that's where we're going to be this morning, Galatians 2, 1 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, don't own one, don't have it on your phone, there should be one near uh, near you in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to take that home, be a gift to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, where things are located, there's a table of contents at the front of it. The large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. This morning we're in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You know, we said last week that as Paul is, is picking up and kind of where he's at in this letter and, and what he's uh, communicating and where he's going, he's laying this groundwork, he's laying a, a foundation and getting ready to build an argument that is going to intersect the heresy, this false belief, this, this lie that has been introduced into these Galatian churches. But what he has to do first is to give himself a legitimate place from which to stand. He's got to have them look at Paul and say, this is a trustworthy brother. Like the things he says are true, the things uh, that we believe about him, let us step into this, lean into this, not doubt what he's saying to us. And so he's going through and he's building this deal and he's refuting the arguments that, that the Judaizers have used to really lead the people away from Paul and from this true gospel. But as we step into this, last week, Paul essentially talks about what it was like for him when he came to faith. He said, I came to faith, Jesus revealed himself to me, and then I went away for a long time. And so I spent this time away in seclusion, and God is reordering my life. He's saying, this is what you believe, and this is what truth is, and this is how you understood this, and this is how this intersects the gospel. And this is how Jesus plays this key critical role in helping you come to a right conclusion on the law. This is how Jesus plays a key critical role in helping you to understand the fulfillment of Scripture and the fulfillment of prophecy. And Paul, all the time, is just like this light bulb moment again and again and again and again and again. And he walks out, and he's like, I got it. The answer is... Uh, the answer is Jesus. I feel like we could have saved that whole three years if you would have just said the answer to every question you're going to ask for the next three years is Jesus. Essentially, that's what Paul gets. But as we look at this section in 2, 1 through 10, the question becomes, where does this line up within the book of Acts? And one of the thoughts uh, that people have generally line up in two different places. One is to say it's in Acts 15, kind of this council that's met there, and the other one is in Acts 11. And for a whole host of reasons that we would have covered on Wednesday night, but we didn't have this class this week, I just know that it's probably not Acts 15, it's probably uh, Acts 11. And if you're really interested in that, Ryan, I'm sure, has some commentaries you can borrow. But for the rest of us, let's just look quickly at Acts 11, 27 through 30. Paul is in Antioch. Barnabas has come to him. And then verse 27, it says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So this group of, of, of men and women likely came down, and they go in there, and then one of them, Agabus, stands up, and he says, and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which took place during the days of Claudius, in verse 29, so the disciples determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so by sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so essentially what we see there is Paul is in Antioch, he's doing ministry, Barnabas has come, he's joined him, and then this group of people traveling from Jerusalem have come down and said, listen, there's this great need coming that God has told me about. And so the church 
uh, elders, the people get together there and they say, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to step into this issue? What is that going to look like for us? And they said, we know you guys, you're going to go. So they look at Paul, they look at Barnabas and they say, we're going to gather up some funds, we're going to gather up some resources, and we're going to send them with you back to this church in Jerusalem. And that's what we see take place that Paul is referencing in Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Let's read 2, 1 to 10, and then we'll, we'll walk through. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And then he adds, he says, In taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation set and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential... What they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, through mine, to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave to me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas with me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And look at what they add to it. It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What we see under these 10 verses may seem to you an odd piece of scripture. It may seem to you to be unnecessary. You're not really sure what Paul is communicating there. But I think it is helpful for us to see this in terms of kind of three separate headings. And one of them is vigilance. Another one is cooperation. And then and lastly, the idea of compassion. So one of the things we see in here is the idea of the gospel demands vigilance. The gospel demands vigilance. Paul's communicating to this church these churches in Galatia, that he indeed did go and he did indeed sit down before the disciples, before the apostles. But he said, listen, it was a full 14 years. Like I'm fully engaging in ministry and I'm out and doing these things. And then God, by a revelation through Agabus, came in and, and these brothers decided that Barnabas and I needed to get up and we needed to go. And while we were there, this conversation took place. And this conversation took, which took place is so incredibly important for you Galatians to understand. See, these Galatians were being led astray. They were being taught essentially this. If you do not become Jewish, Jesus is no good to you. If you don't become Jewish, if you don't take circumcision, if you don't hold to the law, if you don't fully become a part of this people, you got no pairing with God. And Paul says, oh, buddy. I've got a conversation that I have with the apostles that speaks directly to the lies that you're beginning to believe. He says, so Barnabas, who you know, according to Acts 4.36, is a Levite, so the brother's Jewish, and Titus, who you know, is clearly not Jewish. This trio ran up to Jerusalem because of this revelation. And Paul says, I set before them, these influential brothers in private, 
I didn't have this massive public gathering, Acts 15. I had a private gathering with these apostles. And I set before them, what does he say? He says, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. What is the gospel Paul's proclaiming among the Gentiles? Is it something he learned from someone? No. Look back at Galatians 1, 11 and 12. Paul said, for I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, why in the world is it important that we remember this? Because Paul's going to say, I, I, I set this gospel before them because I wanted to make sure I wasn't running in vain or I had not run in vain. If we take running in vain and run in vain to mean that Paul went before them and he said, listen, here's what I think, is this right? Here's what I think, is this right? then Paul discounts the word of Jesus at work in his life. If Paul goes before them insecure and saying, listen, I'm not really sure if these things add up, but this is what I said, this is what I've been saying to the Gentiles, is this right, that he completely discounts the revelation that he received from Jesus. That's not what he's doing. What Paul wants, in essence, to go in and sit before them is to say, from your perspective, you are reaching Jews. From my perspective, what I'm reaching are Gentiles. Is the message we're saying, is it lining up and does it make sense to those who hear it? And what we find over the course of this is indeed it does. What Paul is hearing from the Galatians is that we need to add all these things onto salvation. But the message that Paul has been communicating over and over and over again is heard in so many different places. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, in Romans 10, 9 through 13, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, everybody say, saved. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to, everybody say, shame. You will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on everybody, say him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, Paul comes in, he says, listen, to me when I'm explaining to them, I think the gospel is really simple. That if they believe in their heart that Jesus died and he rose again, and they call on him and ask to be saved, that God's going to do this amazing thing, y'all, he saves them. And this is what I'm telling Gentile after Gentile after Gentile. This is what I'm saying. But Paul recognizes within the heart of the Galatians, they're thinking, surely it must be more complicated. Surely there must be something that we can add. Surely there must be something we need to add to this salvation. Paul speaks directly to that. He addresses that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Oh, this is the best gift we could ever receive. This is the best gift that we could never afford. This gift comes from him. He says it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. The Judaizers had come in and let them think and let them believe and steered them in this path of works-based righteousness. If you walk down this path of doing the right thing time and time and time again, God is in heaven. He's just so happy and so pleased with you. And he's so happy and he's so pleased with you that at the end of all these things, you might actually get saved and you could actually, you could actually be Jewish by the end of this. And they're like, that sounds like something we can do. 
That's what they're believing. That's what they're leaning into. And Paul wants them to understand that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's no magical notion that appears out here that will save you. God saves you as a result of his grace, and it is a gift. It is something you have not deserved, something you have not merited, something you have not worked for, we're not leaning towards, but he saved you even in the midst of your sinfulness. He says, this is what I laid before them. So the apostles hear it, they're in this private gathering, and Paul says, listen, I want you to know how effective this was. That it's me, that it's Barnabas, and y'all remember, he's a Levite. And then there's Titus over here, in all his Gentile disgustingness. Like, he's just dripping with the fact that he's a Gentile, that he's a Greek. And Paul says, listen, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The apostles looked over and they said, Greek, Greek. And they didn't say, yo, Paul, this is a problem. We hear your gospel. We think your gospel is true. But this, this over here, this is a problem. He needs to take care of this. He needs to go have this taken care of. Because Paul was unwilling to add anything to the gospel. Paul was vigilant to defend the gospel. Paul says in the midst of this gathering... In the midst of this gathering, verses 4 and 5, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have where? In Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. He said, we're in the midst of this gathering, we're in the midst of this meeting. So it's me, it's, it's Cephas, it's John, it's Mark, it's James. And we're talking and I'm laying out the gospel. And then somewhere in the back of the room, these guys come in and, and they're just shady brothers. They're just this shady guys. They walk in and they begin to say things like, I can't be circumcised. <laughs> you need to keep the law. But Paul says, listen, I don't want you to be mistaken. These guys were never Christians. How does he describe them? He says they are false brothers. They are pseudo brothers. There is nothing true and repentant in them. There is no real vivifying faith in them. They like notionally the idea of God. They like kind of what it has done to their life. But what they're bringing in isn't a wisdom from God. What they're bringing in is a wisdom from man. And this is where it leads, enslavement and death. It leads you directly away from God. So Paul calls them on it. He says, these brothers are not numbered among the elect. They are not, in fact, Christians. They are false. They are liars the things they tell you are not true do not believe them reject them immediately because the things they say don't accord with sound doctrine and they're going to bring you into slavery so in this moment i think in 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 our conception and maybe this kind of covid year is a bad year to say this because everybody seems prone to argue but normally, we're people who just kind of, okay, wow, that isn't that, isn't that precious. And internally, you're thinking, I think they're going to hell. I think they're going to hell. I think they're going to hell. But externally, you're like, oh, okay, that's just wonderful. Oh, golly gee, I got to get out of here. This is awkward. Paul was unwilling to be polite. Paul was unwilling to relent. Paul was unwilling to say, you know, I think this is just a difference of opinion. What does he say? He said, listen, to these false brothers, we did not yield in submission to them even for a minute. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
Paul recognized that the gospel needs to be defended. And he recognizes that this is the role and responsibility of every Christian. So you might see yourself as just kind of this happy-go-lucky person who doesn't want to offend the people around you. But one of the things you're called to do on, as a result of being a Christian is to be vigilant, to be disciplined. To be engaged constantly in the defense of the gospel. Jude says it this way in Jude verse 4. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of the God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this is who they are and this is what they do. And on the basis of this, this is what he had said to them in verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about the common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was for once and all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. This idea of being vigilant. This idea of engaging in defense. This idea of speaking to. And it requires a number of things of us. First and foremost is we need to know the gospel. We need to be those who, if somebody comes up and says, what does it take to be saved? You're not just, well, you know, it's kind of like this. You just need to go on the internet, and you just need to look for churches in the area, and like find one that just, man, you're just like, you're reading it, and you just get the picture that this is the place for me, and it's all about a relationship with the people that you're going to meet there, and what you need is a community. Listen, you're not defending the gospel. You're deflecting a conversation that you think might lead you into conflict with the sin this person likely has in their life. You're being dishonest to them, and you're dishonoring God in the process. We need to be those who can defend the gospel. We need to be those who can contend against darkness. And we need to be those who would welcome and beckon sinners to come and to know a Jesus who saves. We need to be vigilant. We need to be those who contend for the gospel once and all delivered to the saints. But along the side of doing this, we recognize in the midst of these things that we must be cooperating with those around us. And and herein lies the difficulty. For the city is such a wonderful opportunity for us to cooperate with a whole host of people that, that come down on some different particulars of faith in a variety of different ways and manifestations, right? Like if you've spent very much time with me, you'll say, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. I think this is going to land right. Matt's not a Pentecostal. Maybe you don't know me that well. For those of you who aren't laughing and you say, I don't know, maybe he is. I think probably you're a fundamentalist Baptist and that's why you're coming down like that. But nevertheless, and so I'm not a Pentecostal, but I love to minister in this city with them. Yo, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Methodist. Like, when I was baptized, three bubbles came out. I am a Baptist. But I love to minister alongside of them. And I love to minister alongside Lutherans and, and people of a Bible background and even home church people who are afraid of strangers. Like, I love... <clears throat> that was funnier before I said it. <laughs> Certainly less offensive. I feel like sometimes we need to go back to the beginning of the service in the midst of the let's pray for sins that we say for him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it for him it's sin. Uh, maybe we'll, at the end of the service we'll do that. I'll pray with one of the elders. That'd be, that'd be good stuff. Okay. We recognize that, that there are lines we have to draw. 
If we're going to be vigilant, if we're going to be disciplined, if we're going to defend the gospel, then there are lines we can't cross for the goal of cooperation. So I'm mindful that like two or three years ago, we get into the midst of this and, and, and a, a larger church in the community begins to get wind of something that just irritates the snot out of them. And they're, just, they're pretty frustrated with us as, as a church who's kind of leading out in this and engaging in this pursuit. And so they come and they say, listen, we've heard uh, th- that you're not letting the Mormon church sign up and be a part of this. And to me, it seemed like a really obvious response. Yeah, they're not Christians. Like Mormonism is a, is, is a part of the cult. It's a cult practice. They are not Christians. I'm not saying they're not good, people's, good people. My neighbors across the street, they are Mormons. But they are not Christians. They do not have salvation in Jesus' name. They understand the Bible radically differently than we do. They understand salvation differently than we do. They understand sin. They understand eternality differently than we do. Like a whole host of issues that I could list for you or you could Google in 30 seconds. But I'm telling you this as easy as I can. They're not Christians. We cannot partner with them because of what it communicates about their belief. They said, well, we think this is small-minded. We think this is bigoted. And that's going to be the accusation. Now, it could be that you are a small-minded bigot, and don't use that as a defense for your small-minded bigotedness. Bigotedness, Justin, is that right? Thank you. But we need to be those who want partnerships, but who defend the gospel. Look at how beautiful the partnership and the cooperation that Paul has in the midst of this is. He says, from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. So they heard Paul lay out the gospel, and and although at the end of it they would say, listen, we would articulate the gospel a little bit differently because we're reaching the circumcised, we're reaching the Jews, we're not adding anything to you. We don't think your salvation is deficient. We don't think the message you're preaching is deficient because you're reaching a different audience. And so they cooperated even though they recognized that their particular emphasis in ministry is different. We're reaching this people and you're reaching that people. And all people need Jesus. And so they cooperated to reach more. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. They recognized the work of God in Paul. And some of what we need to do in wanting and desiring to cooperate with other people is to think graciously and compassionately and positively about those we partner with in this city. I feel like in the nine years I've been in Greenville, one of the things I've heard over and over and over again from a whole host of people is, yeah, that's the church for this people. That, they're just not a friendly group over there. That's the church for the, for the rich people who are socially moderate. That's the church for this who are that. And it's just probably better if we just kind of notionally nod to one another in Walmart, but we don't work together. Because cooperation is messy. Cooperation is going to expose the fault lines and what we believe, and, and, and cooperation is going to, it, it, it's just going to really focus on the reasons we can't cooperate. 
the biggest split, the biggest issue in the New Testament church is how in the world are we going to get Gentiles and Jews together in the same room? How in the world can God save this group of people? How can he eliminate this dividing wall of hostility, Paul says in Ephesians 2? But somehow when we look at other denominations, somehow when we look at at churches who who worship in this way or that way, we say, oh, cooperation isn't worth it. It's just too difficult. Cooperation calls us to investigate and look for the grace at work in other bodies. And it's good for us. It refines our convictions. It could be that over the course of investigation, we come down and say, Man, we, we just, we believe so differently. We, we probably just, we probably just can't work together. But those community worship gatherings, do you remember being at those? There's, Steve Livingood's twin was there at, at one of them. It's not really, but it was this guy who, he was like a doppelganger for Steve Livingood. And he just jumped the whole time and sang for like an hour and a half. And I swear his calves must be this big around because he was not a small man. And so in the midst of these things, in being led in worship and recognizing the grace of God coming out of this guy and in this worship service, you could not deny the gospel rested in that place. But if we don't give ourselves to cooperation, if we don't give ourselves to partnership, then our faith is impoverished. And our ministry to this city is weakened. And our effectiveness and our stewarding of finite resources is limited. Partnership and cooperation must be a part of who we are. It was a part of who Paul was. It was a part of what the apostles thought was necessary. And it must be a part of who we are. These pillars, these men, James and Cephas and John in verse 9. When they perceived the grace that was given to Paul, they extended this right hand of fellowship and they said, listen, we must work together. And when they sent them out, they sent them out with this idea that in being sent out, they needed to be those who, because they had been touched by the gospel, they went forward in compassion. This is the very reason in verse 10, he says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now maybe you're a good Bible student and what this makes you remember is James 1 and 27. James 1 27 says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. One of the reasons that we go out and we engage, that we <clears throat> mow lawns, that we cut down bushes that I would love to have in my house, that we fix roofs, that we bathe in poison ivy, that we paint our own bodies. Actually, I don't get that one. <clears throat> one of the reasons we go out and we do these things, we go to hospitals and nursing homes and we pray and a prayer team gathers all year long is so that we can show the love of Christ. And there's something that happens. There's something that is seen. When a group of people from a whole bunch of churches that have no reason to partner together on paper, we all go out and we take vacation, we all go out and we wear the same shirt, we all go out and we labor for the same cause, we gain legitimacy to share the gospel in a way that we couldn't have before. 
in a way that we couldn't have if we didn't partner together. If you were to ask most people in Greenville, hey, are there very many churches in town? They would look at you like you are a moron. Because you can drive up and down almost any street in this town and run out of fingers and toes counting churches. But if you were to ask that same group of people, what do these churches do to make Greenville a better city? What do these churches do to impact your life? You're going to run into way more people that have no good answer for you. Or certainly no answer that's going to satisfy you and make you feel good about yourself. I feel like we've been really good at being vigilant. I feel like we've done really well defending the gospel. Because we feel like we can defend it from the safety and the security of these walls. We can defend it from the safety of our lot here on Wesley Street. I feel like we've even been pretty good at, at, at being compassionate. Our benevolence ministry and, and the ways that we minister to the people in our community. But if we're going to be impactful in the future, if we're going to have a foothold in this community moving into the 21st century, cooperation has to be the key. We will not survive. We will not be impactful if we don't give our all to cooperating for the sake of the gospel. Paul saw it. Peter, James, John, they saw it and they recognized it. And we better figure out how to rediscover it and to give ourselves to it and to pray to God for it and to be willing to be uncomfortable, to be willing to be wrong. And to be willing to bend on issues that still allowed us to be vigilant in the defense of the gospel. Because the lost of our community are worth us being uncomfortable. And the poor of our community are worth the difficulties in navigating all the various intricacies of cooperation. And God in his glory is worth it. Amen. So would you join with me as we pray and we ask God to grow us in our desire to cooperate, to grow us in our willingness to be vigilant, and to grow within our hearts a desire for compassion. God, you have moved in our hearts, you have stirred in our community. But God, would you lead us to bold cooperation? you help us to join with the work that your spirit is already doing in this community? God, would you lead us to see the grace at work in the other churches of our community? That we would pray for them, that we would be advocates for them. God, and that we would think the best of them. You are good and you do good. Father, as we transition in these next moments to submit ourselves once again to reflect on what you are calling us to do, how you are calling us to be. 
I pray that you would lead us forward in the power of your spirit. God, that we would find ourselves submitting to you, being led by you, and giving ourselves to you in all things. And God, we, we ask these things of you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.